I want to welcome those who are worshiping with us by way of live streaming today or those who are over in our Rejoice service worshiping with us as well. We are on Sundays in this Lenten season, we're looking at the topic of prayer together. What is its potential? What are the problems? What are the possibilities associated with prayer? We said a number of things in the course of this study that it is our prayer life that enables our faith to be a personal thing, a relational thing, uh, and keeps faith from simply being an academic or philosophical exercise or a ritual we go through. It is our personal relationship with God, which our God desires, which is enhanced greatly through our life of prayer. We've been looking at instruction that Jesus himself has given with respect to prayer, and we're doing so this morning too. If you paid attention to the scripture lesson from John that Eva read to us this morning, there's a truth being taught in that lesson which, if understood, can not only enhance but transform your life of prayer, and if misunderstood, can lead you down a dead-end road and perhaps cause you to despair not only of a prayer, but of your life and, and faith. Uh, it's hard to know what to call the truth that's being affirmed here. Uh, William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury back in the 1940s, uh, wrote a book, The Christian Life and Faith, and he calls this truth correspondence. Correspondence. I've referred to it as something else uh, this morning. I'm referring to it as praying from a partner's perspective. Have you ever thought of yourself as being in partnership with God. A junior partner, to be sure, but a partner nonetheless. Uh, we've said that the first pur purpose of prayer is simply to know God better, more intimately. Uh, and it's not to change God's mind about anything or to advise God how to govern the universe or um, do what we wish to be done in life. Uh, we also learned that we are to pray expectantly, knowing when we pray that God is capable of doing anything we could ask, but knowing also that God sees from a perspective greater than ours, and that God better understands even than we do what will bless us and what will bless others. Not only do we pray expectantly, but we pray persistently. We don't give up on prayer, and the persistence in our praying reveals to us and to God those things that are deepest in our hearts and on our minds in our life of faith. Today we're looking at what it means to pray from a partner's perspective. If you notice, in verse 14 of our lesson, Jesus says he's preparing his disciples for the fact that he is about to take leave from them with his death and, and resurrection. So he's telling them that they will continue in his work and in his ministry. They will not only do the things he did, but will do greater things because he's going to the Father. And he reminds them of the efficacy and the power of prayer. And he says to them, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring, bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Now, if you don't understand what he's saying here, then you are destined for disappointment and depression and despair and the likelihood that you may give up on prayer and even give up on God. So many people do. They misinterpret what Jesus is saying here. They take these words with a kind of wooden literalness that is not warranted. And they treat prayer 
as a magic potion, a magic wand. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Well, that's confused a lot of people. Some people think it's just ending your prayers with something like, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. As simple as that. Philip Yancey in his little book entitled Simply Prayer talks about two well-known authors, uh, both of whom gave up on the life of faith simply because they had prayed that God would spare them from some debilitating condition that they had and apparently that prayer was not answered as they prayed it though they prayed it in Jesus' name they thought they did that was Somerset Maughan and um, let's see who was the other one Somerset Maughan I can't remember I have it in my notes oh George Orwell 1964 George Orwell because his uh, prayer was not answered as he prayed it and he thought Jesus had promised to answer the prayers, then he gave up. But is that what it means, simply closing your prayers in the name of Jesus? I don't think so. Uh, Some believe if you don't do that, not only are your prayers ineffective, but they're not even heard. There was a well-known Baptist preacher from Texas several years ago that created quite a firestorm theologically and ecclesiastically across the landscape, the Christendom landscape of, of Christendom, When he said that God does not hear or answer the prayers of Jews because they're not offered in the name of Jesus. Well, that is taking this much too literally. The Bible is full of prayers that don't end in those words that Jesus responds to, hears, and and answers. And it's also just treating these words in the name of Jesus as some kind of Christian abracadabra, if you will, to accomplish whatever it is that you desire not necessarily what God desires. Well, then, if uh, asking for something in Jesus' name is not just repeating those words at the end of a prayer, uh, what does it mean? To act in someone's name, to speak in someone's name, is to serve as that person's representative. From a biblical perspective, both among Jews and Christians, the word name itself means yourself. When someone knows your name, they know a part of who you are. That's why it's so wonderful when God reveals his name. I am who I am. I will be who I will be to Moses in in the wilderness. But to ask for something in Jesus' name is to ask for what Jesus would ask for. It is to pray for what Jesus would pray. It is to value what Jesus values It is to seek what Jesus would seek and to want what Jesus would want for you and for others. If what you seek in prayer is to serve the higher purpose of God as expressed in the person and hence the name of Jesus Christ, God will grant your request. For God will accomplish his sovereign purpose in the world, in history, in the church, and in your own life though you may may not be able to see it at the time but God does know and will achieve what he desires for you and for his world so to pray in Jesus' name is to pray as Jesus himself would pray and even now is praying to pray in Jesus' name is a means whereby we submit our own desires own wishes our own will to the greater good and glory of God and his purposes 
And so we share honestly with our God when we pray what is uppermost on our hearts and minds, the desires that we have. But we also know that we, as Jesus did, conclude our prayers, if not spoken, at least acknowledging, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. All of this is a reminder that as the disciples of Jesus Christ, we are partners in God's service, just as our opening hymn. We're called to, to be partners with Christ. Junior partners, yes, but partners nonetheless. God shares his work with us and entrusts it to us to the extent that we can comprehend infinite things with finite minds. Our holy things, though we are flawed creatures, or eternal things, though we have such narrow and temporal interests. Nevertheless, as disciples of Jesus Christ, as representatives of God within the world and the church, we are partners, we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And those things we seek in prayer and in our work are the things that God seeks and wants for his world and for his people. In 1 Corinthians 3, 9, there's a division in the church in Corinth. People are aligning up with various leaders, with Paul or with Apollos or with someone else. And so Paul has to say, what are we that you would align with us? We are only co-workers with God. We are partners with God. Let's think about God and not about ourselves. But do we do this in our prayer life as Christians? Unfortunately, we don't. And we never have perfectly done that. Disciples never have. Because we are fallen creatures, we probably never will. And consequently, we often mistake or substitute our wills for the will of God. And when we do that, not only do we often, often pray for things that are not just inappropriate, but things that are actually contrary to the will and the work of God. So if you want to do what pleases God in your prayer life, that's what you should pray for. And that is what you should recognize as you're praying that you are seeking what God desires over and above what you desire. Though they may be the same thing, but not always. Probably the most often quoted word from St. Augustine is, love God and do as you please. Now, some people think that means, oh, if so long as you love God, you can do anything you want. That's not what Augustine is saying. He's saying, if you love God, what pleases you will be what pleases God. Do you see the difference? Love God and do as you please, yes. But what pleases you will do, be serving the pleasure of your Lord and your Savior. A good example of how prayers often contradict the purposes of God, is in Mark's account of Jesus journeying to Jerusalem and to the cross. And he's walking along with his disciples. James and John are among the inner circle of the disciples. And along the way, they pull Jesus aside and make a prayer request of him, if you will. They ask that they may be given positions of honor and privilege when his kingdom comes in. Now, they're thinking of an earthly kingdom. They're thinking Jesus, Jesus is about to be coronated the new king of Israel. That that's the glory that's awaiting them. But Jesus understands and makes it clear, especially in the Gospel of John, that the glory that he is seeking is the glory that will come about through the crucifixion and resurrection. That's his glory. And these disciples have the audacity 
to ask that they be given positions of privilege and, and prominence in the kingdom. And you have to wonder, did they not understand the words of Jesus any better than that at that time? They were part of the inner circle. Did they not hear him say that the greatest in the kingdom will be those who are the least, those who serve? The first shall be last and the last shall be first. And so, of course, their request cannot be granted, nor should it have been granted. The request itself runs counter to all that Jesus was about and all that he taught and all that he came to do and to accomplish. It was beneath the dignity of these disciples to ask that they be given special privilege and prominence. In fact, so much so beneath the dignity of disciples that when Matthew is recording his gospel, he has the gospel of Mark in front of him, but he refuses to put this request on the lips of James and John. Instead, he has their mother make the request of Jesus that her boys, James and John, might be given positions of prominence. Now, I think their mother gets a bad rap. I think they were, the, they were the ones who asked for the special privilege, not their mother. It is a mercy, is it not, that God does not answer our prayers precisely as we pray them because so many of them are narrowly self-serving, diametrically opposed to the will and the work of God and incapable of seeing the greater and the larger picture, what God may yet accomplish in us and through us and through others. No doubt many of you are familiar with the great theologian Garth Brooks who wrote the, the hymn of the hymn, the song, Unanswered Prayers. The chorus of that song goes like this, and this is Garth Brooks's words, not mine. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs that just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And I agree with that. I can think of prayers I've offered in my lifetime that if they had been answered as I prayed them, I would have been in a lot of trouble around a number of different issues. <laughs> to pray in Jesus' name, therefore, is to remind ourselves and others as to who is really in charge of our life, the life of the church, and the life of the world. It is to submit our request and our good intentions to the better wisdom and the greater glory and the higher purposes of our sovereign God. Several weeks ago I said that prayer's first purpose was to know God better. Perhaps prayer's second purpose is to help us to submit our wills and our wishes to the inscrutable purposes of God, which we may not understand in the moment, but we trust to be best for us and for others. In my study of prayer, um, before I began this series, I enjoyed reading the works of many spiritual giants through the centuries. And it, while it may just be my perception of this, it, it does seem to me that earlier generations of Christians understood this much better than those of us in our contemporary society and culture. And therefore, they could accept God's silence or even God's denial of their request with a greater grace and humility than is present in our lives quite often. And I wonder why is this is so. Is it because we as a people are more self-absorbed? Is it because we're more self-assertive? Is it because we're less humble? What is it? Is it because we've come to believe that life and faith are really all about us? 
and not about God? Nearly 20 years ago, Rick Warren wrote this book, The Purpose Driven Life. I'm sure you probably have read it or heard about it or, or seen it. But he shocked a lot of his initial readers when in his opening chapter he says, talking about the faith, he says, it's not about us. It's about God. It's not about your purpose in life. It's about God's purpose through you. And that got the attention of a lot of people in our self-absorbed age. But what I notice about many of these older prayers, and I've been using some of them as our prayers of confession, and I put another one in the bulletin this morning that you can read. But as you read that and reflect on it, see if it doesn't speak to you about a different kind of theological outlook. It's not just the archaic language that separates these prayers from, our, from ours. It's that they seem to have a different perspective on faith and life and prayer than we do. They seem to have a humble and self-effacing posture as they pray. So having been encouraged in recent weeks to pray expectantly, confidently, to pray persistently, I now encourage you to pray as Christ would pray with respect to every event in your life. And you will be a partner with God in his work in your life and in his work in his kingdom. If it is God's will that you truly want in your life, if it is God's will that you are seeking, then rest assured that in God's time and manner, all of that will be accomplished in a way that you may not see at the moment. Now, how can you better know what the will and the purposes of God are? The best advice I could give you is simply to study and reflect on the life and ministry and the words of Jesus Christ. That's the clearest picture we will ever have of who God is and what God wants for his people and his world. There's no better way to understand the nature and the work of God than to focus on Jesus Christ. And so I will close this reflection today with the same words that called us to worship this morning. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, those are two conditions. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done. And why is this so? Because what you wish and what you desire most in your life is for God's purposes to be served because you're his partner in the work of his kingdom. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.